Hello and welcome to Complexity Unpacked with Professor Gonsalves. In this series, we'll be unpacking forensic psychology. The recommended text, if you're in one of my classrooms, is the Forensic Psychology textbook by Joanna Pizzullo, Craig Bennell, and Adele Forth. It's a great resource and I strongly recommend you use it to supplement your understanding of the content. So let's dive right into it. Forensic psychology is a field of psychology that deals with all aspects of human behavior as it relates to the law or legal systems. So it involves a variety of critical elements that relate to legal proceedings and the investigations of crimes. So for example, things that would fall under its purview would be profiling, jury selection, uh, determining sanity, and there are, there are many other things that we'll sort of unpack in the episodes to come. But to start with, Let's just accept that there's no generally accepted perfect definition of the field of forensic psychology. So some uh, common alternatives, uh, ways that people describe it, include legal psychology or criminological psychology. So let's try and get down to what exactly it is we're talking about, right? And there's a couple of different ways that we might think to define the field of forensic psychology. So many leading psychologists prefer to define the field very narrowly. Right? And that is primarily providing professional psychological expertise to the judicial system. So in this example, you're narrowing sort of the scope, if you will, of a forensic psychologist down to clinical psychology or counseling psychology, uh, neuropsychology and school psychology. The narrow definition is meant to focus in very specifically on expertise provided to the judicial system. If you incorporate a broader definition of the field, then you would also include research. So things that examine aspects of human behavior directly or uh, sort of directly related to the legal process. But it might also include the professional practice of psychology uh, and consultation within a legal system that embraces both uh, sort of civil and criminal law. Right. And the biggest difference between the two is in the first, we're looking at a very applied sense of what is going on uh, within the field and how it interacts. And the second one includes research and research is a critical component because it informs a lot of the practice. But what is consistent between both narrow and broad definitions of forensic psychology is that all those people that call themselves forensic psychologists are always interested in issues that arise at the intersection between psychology and the law. So there are different and distinct roles within the field of forensic psychologists. So let's sort of lay those out so that people have a clear understanding on sort of who's doing what, right? So a clinician or a clinical forensic psychologist is broadly concerned with mental health issues as they pertain to the legal system. They are often dealing with assessments and treatments of persons with mental disorders within the context of the law, though. A clinical forensic psychologist in Canada must be licensed as a clinical psychologist who specializes in the forensic area. So those psychologists that primarily focus on research are usually referred to as experimental forensic psychologists. So they engage with the study of human behavior as it relates to the law or the legal system. And the third role sort of within this typology, if you will, is the legal scholar role um, within the field. And it's a less common one, uh, but these are people who have both their PhD in psychology as well as their degree in law. And the whole point 
of this role is to produce forensic psychologists who are much more informed about both the legal process and the legal system, obviously with a background in psychology, so as to be able to provide better sort of support and consultation in legislation and things of that nature. There are three main ways in which psychology in the law relate to each other. Um, so let's let's break them down. So the first one is psychology and the law. And in this sort of view, psychology is considered as a separate field from the law entirely. Researchers that fall into this category look at issues and assumptions made by the law within our legal system. So they might be looking at uh, eyewitness accuracy, or they might be looking at the way certain interrogations are done, uh, done and the techniques that are used. Uh, and trying to figure out what the correlation is between the interrogation technique, perhaps, and the rate of false confessions. Uh, the second area we might look at is psychology in the law. So this deals more with the areas where psychological knowledge has already been accepted, right, through research and findings and studies and everything else. And then they're trying to figure out how it can be used in the legal system. So, for example, a psychologist might be giving expert testimony during a trial. Um, or on a more sort of you know casual level, a law enforcement officer with the training and with training and experience in education and background in psychology might be using that knowledge to sort of improve the efficiency of law enforcement. So that's a way to sort of consider how psychology has a place in the law. And then finally, the last one would be psychology off the law, and this is more a scholarly sort of endeavor, right? It involves the use of psychology to study the law itself. So, for example, it might examine what role the police should be playing in like a domestic dispute or whether or not laws actually reduce crime in our society. Forensic psychology has a fairly short history dating back to only the 19th century. And the early practitioners didn't really uh, identify in the way that we're calling and referring to the field today. Right? But their contributions and the things that they did back then essentially laid the foundation for all of what we consider to be forensic psychology within our justice system today. So the field was primarily de uh, developed in Europe and then North America, and there are several key points and key contributors that have really informed the practice. And so I want to give you a quick overview, and then we'll sort of look into them a little bit further down the line. Right, so in, 18, in 1843, uh, Daniel McNaughton is a person that attempts to assassinate the British Prime Minister of the time, who was Robert Peel. Uh, except in his attempt, he got the wrong person, and he ended up shooting his undersecretary, uh, Drummond. But when he went to trial, he claimed that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. And he's found not guilty by reason of insanity on that, um, on that attempt. And this case led to the development of the McNaughton rule. And it's the rule that's used to determine sort of insanity and whether or not it fits within the confines of a given case. Fast forward a little bit. In 1895, uh, James Cattell found a correlation between confidence and accuracy. And in testing people's everyday observation skills, he noticed that people's answers were often inaccurate. So this allowed them to develop a theory around, you know, what is the accuracy of eyewitness testimony and what role does that have sort of within uh, the gathering of facts, if you will. You move down a little bit further. Uh, in 1900, uh, Alfred Binet, a French uh, psychologist, contributed to the understanding 
of the suggestibility of children. And what he was showing was that the testimony provided by children was highly susceptible to suggestive questioning techniques. And he demonstrated that children report more accurately when they are asked broad sort of free recall questions. But when you sort of prime them with leading questions, very quickly the information and their ability to recall accurately starts to diminish. And then finally, in 1910, William Stern uh, conducted a, a range of studies again on the suggestibility of witnesses. And what he found, and this is what sort of distinguishes him from the previous study I mentioned, was the suggestibility, suggestibility of witnesses here was impacted by their level of emotional arousal. So what he was trying to demonstrate here is that when people are under high stress and there's a major sort of reaction going on in the body, their capacity to remember events accurately are greatly diminished. And this would call into question anything that uh, someone is giving testimony on, which they saw under a highly stressful situation. And it does influence the way we look at sort of eyewitness testimony under those sort of adverse conditions. A couple of other sort of significant courtroom uh, instances that sort of have influenced the way we look at uh, the subject uh, comes to us again from Europe. And in 1896, Albert Notzing uh, found that extensive pretrial press coverage influences testimony of witnesses. So he called that uh, phenomena the retroactive memory falsification, which referred to the process of witnesses confusing actual memories of events with the events described in the media. Right? And this is particularly relevant when you think about social media today and the news today and the amount of pretrial stress that, uh, and information that is sort of put out there before we know any of the facts. And the idea is to think about how that can influence the eyewitnesses that are sort of, you know, uh, sort of reporting on what they saw, but there's a gap and there's news coverage in the middle. In 1911, uh, Julian Varendonk gave testimony based on his studies that again showed that, like Alfred Binet, the testimony provided by children was likely to be inaccurate because they were prone to suggestion. And this was sort of uh, testimony he gave in court. So now you're taking the experiments and you're applying them to actual settings where they're giving expert testimony in court, in court and that sort of leads the field to gain some more credibility uh, in its understanding and application. If you move over to North America then, in 1908, Hugo Munsterberg, considered by many to be the father of forensic psychology, released a publication titled On the Witness Stand. And he was arguing that psychology had much to offer the legal system. Uh, unfortunately, the manner in which he wrote the book was not, very well, uh, not really well received by those within the justice system. And he was highly critical of the way they did uh, sort of their job. And he was suggesting that psychology could help with that, but obviously got some resistance from within that justice system. While there were counter views suggested to the contents of his book, it did lead to the increase in research in the area of forensic psychology as we know it today, uh, as well as research that sort of supported the practical application in a wide variety of criminal justice settings. In 1913, psychological services were first offered in a U.S. correctional facility. Uh, in 1917, Lewis Terman uh, was the first American psychologist to use mental tests as screening devices in the selection of law enforcement personnel. And then in 1921, William Marston 
you know, sort of figured out that there was a correlation between lying and br- and blood pressure. He went on to invent, uh, you know, the first sort of polygraph machine. Uh, and while it wasn't successful initially, it definitely did sort of move the field forward in some key areas. The other landmark cases uh, in the United States, for example, that uh, have informed the practice uh, included uh, State versus Driver in 1921. This was the first time a psychologist was allowed to give expert testimony in an American court case. Uh, in 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education case, landmark case uh, for a whole number of reasons relating to civil rights, but this was the first time that psychological research was cited in a U.S. Supreme Court decision. And then in 1962, Jenkin versus the United States, in a case involving a defendant claiming to be not guilty by reason of insanity, three clinical psychologists gave testimony in support of the defendant. The trial judge instructed the jury to disregard the testimony and ruled that psychologists were not qualified to give expert testimony on mental disease. However, on appeal, that statement was reversed and they were then allowed to, uh, you know, allow specifically trained psychologists to give expert testimony. And that sort of allows for the introduction of psychological experts in the court system and a reversal of that original position which would have become precedent and had an impact on the field writ large. Closer to home, we have Canadian cases that have also informed the field of forensic psychology and some of the landmark Canadian cases that have sort of given us our perspectives on um, on the law as it relates to forensic psychology include uh, in 1975, R. versus uh, Hubbard. And in that case, the Ontario Court of Appeals uh, stated that numerous safeguards needed to be in place in the Canadian judicial system to maintain impartiality of the jury. So you start to see from, uh, as a result of this, limitations that were imposed on the press in terms of what they could report before trial. See, pre-trial press coverage has um, a way of influencing the jury. And this was recognized in this case. In 1986, R. versus Sofino, the Manitoba Court of Appeals overturned the murder conviction of Thomas Sofino due to problems with eyewitness evidence collected by the police. So this is bringing it back to some of those earlier conversations around the reliability of uh, eyewitness testimony. Uh, then in 1990, R. versus Lavalie, another landmark case. This one was decided at the Supreme Court level, and the Supreme Court of Canada set guidelines for when and how expert testimony should be used in cases involving battered women syndrome. So since this ruling, expert testimony in cases of battered women who kill, uh, you know, the abusers has increased significantly. In 1991, a short time later, uh, Wendon versus Tricia, the Alberta Court of uh, the Queen's Bench ruled that mental health professionals have a duty to warn any third party if they have reasonable grounds to believe that their client intends to seriously harm that individual. So you're beginning to see that duty to report and the understanding that there are limitations to privacy and those limitations must stop at the point where someone else's life is in danger. In 1991, R versus Swain, the Supreme Court here um, made a ruling that resulted in changes to the insanity defense standard in Canada. So including uh, one of the big things that they changed as well was the actual name of the defense and when that defense can be raised and for how long insanity equities can be detained. 
So some landmark things in terms of understanding the evolution of our laws from that uh, in that regard. Uh, in 1994, you get the R versus Mohan case, and the Supreme Court of Canada established the formal criteria for determining when expert testimony should be admitted into court. Today, that's known as the Mohan rule. In 1999, R versus Gladue, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that per, uh, prison sentences were being too heavily relied upon by judges as a way of dealing with criminal behavior, especially in the case of indigenous people. And so from this case, you see this focus on other sentencing options that should be considered. And you start to get the evolutions of some of our modern day dispositions or our current day dispositions on alternative sentencing options. And then finally, in 2000, R versus Oikel, the Supreme Court of Canada rules that police interrogation techniques, which consisted of various forms of psychological coercion, were acceptable, and that confessions extracted through their use can be admissible in court. Now, obviously, they set some criterion for what was permissible within a police interrogation, but we'll come back to that a little later on. So in the backdrop of all of this court jurisprudence that's being uh, developed and the case law that's being established, obviously the field of psychology uh, continues to grow and continues to get informed. So psychological theories of crime help inform the practice and help us better understand some of those dispositions that you're looking at when you're dealing with you know, uh, a case that comes in front of the justice system. So several psychoanalytical theories of crime have been developed over that period of time, and many of them can be attributed, at least in its origin, to Sigmund Freud, who was the one who advocated for the use of psychology in the legal system. So most of these theories have several things in common, and that is that they take the position that it is primarily dynamic internal forces within people that account for their criminal behavior. And they argue that early childhood events and experiences are crucial for understanding crime. So just one example of a psychoanalytical theory of crime would be that uh, proposed by John Bowlby. And he came up and argued for the theory of maternal deprivation. So as his theory goes, he posits that the early separation of a child from his or her mother prevents effective social development from taking place. And without this effective social development, he argued that children would experience long-term problems in developing positive social relationships. Instead, he figured they would develop antisocial behavior patterns. Now, his theory was based on his study of juvenile delinquents, but it was generalizable to the general population uh, in, a, in a reliable and testable manner. And numerous studies have indicated that negative early childhood experiences can indeed influence the development of antisocial behavior, validating his original hypothesis. The other theories that we might want to look at and we will explore a little later on in the series include learning theories. So all learning theories are based upon the principle uh, of conditioning. And they speculate that a person's behavior, and that includes their criminal behavior, is learned and maintained by the consequences that it could potentially face. So this principle is largely what guides our sentencing practices in North America. And one example of a learning theory that we might focus on here would be the social learning theory uh, posited by Albert Bandura. So his um, hypothesis was that 
not only can learning occur from the consequences that result from an individual's own behavior, but it can also occur by observing the consequences experienced by others. So according to social learning theorists, it is largely through our observations of others that we learn how to perform those uh, observed behaviors. Right? And this might have a lot to do with this idea of sentencing and deterrence, because the goal there would be to create a deterrent value based on someone else's experience and the consequences they receive. If I move over to a personality theory of crime, then some theorists would argue here that individuals who get involved in crime do so primarily because of their personality makeup. So personality theorists suggest that criminals have either developed or inherited a personality that is um, a set of underlying stable traits that differentiates them in some way from law-abiding citizens. And an example of that would be the biosocial theory of crime proposed by Hans Eisenseck, who focuses on biological, social, and individual factors. Now, he believed that some individuals are born with an autonomic nervous system that affects their ability to learn. And this happens as a result of consequences from their behavior and their internal response to those things. So that gives you a broad overview of some of the major theories and some of the key sort of theorists that have contributed to the field of forensic psychology, uh, but equally to the field of psychology in the way that we understand human behavior, motivation, and the driving internal forces and external social forces that might influence behavior writ large. Right. So when we start drilling back to forensic psychology then and understanding what role that forensic psychologist plays within the justice system, one of the key functions that they play is by providing expert testimony. And in the role of an expert witness, they generally serve one of two functions. So one is to provide the court with information that would assist them in understanding a particular issue. And the other is to provide their expert opinion to the court, both of which help inform sort of the incident at question, right? So keeping in mind, obviously, that psychology studies behavior generally and looks at broad patterns, but of course, the law specifically applies it to a particular incident, right? And that's one of those ways that they defer. So in contrast to other witnesses that come to court who can generally only testify about what they have directly seen, directly observed, right? Expert witnesses can provide the court with their personal opinion on matters relevant to the case. And this is where their expert study of the field gives them the authority, if you will, to speak broadly about an issue at hand. Now, these opinions and inferences must always fall within the specific limits of their own expertise. So it's not just because you're a psychologist you can speak about anything on a witness stand, but very specifically, a expert witness who is brought in to speak about a certain particular issue has a background in that particular discipline within the field, right? So it's important to understand that role that they play. The other important point to point out is that when providing testimony to the courts, the expert witness is not there actually to advocate for the defense or to work for the prosecution for that matter. They're merely supposed to be there as an educator to the judge and jury. So they're providing some quality information upon which that jury can make a decision. 
And in this way, we sort of understand that it's not specifically with a purpose, an ulterior motive that they're driven there, right? So they're not there to act as an advocate for the defense. But they're also equally not just there to discredit that witness. They're, they're there to give a expert opinion on the conditions at large. So to wrap up this first episode, forensic psychology is a field of psychology that deals with all aspects of the human behavior as it specifically relates to the law or legal systems. In the episodes to come, we'll dive a little deeper and in, we'll unpack uh, issues that are more specific. But this is your, your general overview on why we're having this discussion and what are the key components that frame this season, if you will. As always, I thank you for listening and I hope you'll stay tuned and keep checking in for new episodes as they're released. This is Professor Gonsalves and I appreciate your support for Complexity Unpacked. Oh, you know, man, you know, man, you know, man.